I'm Russ Portnoy, the Executive Director of the MGHS Institute for Innovation and Palliative Care, and I'm delighted to welcome you to the first Professor's Rounds in the 2018 MGHS and HPCO Interprofessional Webinar Series in Palliative Care. I'm really delighted today to welcome Dr. Betty Farrell to our Professor's Round Series. Dr. Farrell is the Director of the Division of Nursing Research and Education and Professor at City of Hope National Medical Center in Los Angeles. She is a fellow of the American Academy of Nursing and in 2013 was named one of the 30 visionaries in palliative care by the American Academy of Hospice and Palliative Care, Palliative Medicine. She has received the Oncology Nursing Society's Distinguished Nurse Researcher Award and is a 2014 inductee into the International Nurse Researcher Hall of Fame of the Honor Society of Nursing, of Nursing Sigma Theta Tau International. Dr. Farrell's educational and research focus has been in the area of pain management, quality of life, palliative care, and spirituality. In 2000, she founded the End of Life Nursing Education Consortium, or LNEC, um, which teaches nurses how to deliver effective palliative care. LNEC now trains nurses in 95 countries and supports education in pediatric palliative care. Dr. Farrell has published more than 400 papers and chapters and has written or edited 11 books. These include the Oxford Textbook of Palliative Nursing, which is now in its fourth edition, The, the Nature of Suffering and the Goals of Nursing, Making Healthcare Whole, Integrating Spirituality in Palliative Care. About a year ago, she helped write the Institute of Medicine report called Delivering High Quality Cancer Care, Charting a New Course for a System in Crisis, which recommends ways to improve cancer care delivery in the United States. Dr. Farrell has been co-chairperson of the National Consensus Project for Quality Palliative Care for many years. The material that has evolved from this project has been highly influential in both professional training and palliative care program development. She is now spearheading the updating and revising of this work, and we've asked her to discuss this project today. We are delighted to welcome Dr. Betty Farrell to Professor's Rounds, and her topic today will be 2018 update of the National Consensus Project for Quality Palliative Care, Process and Outcomes. Betty. Thank you very much. I'm really glad to have this opportunity today to give everyone a little bit of a preview of what's to come later this year. I'm also just very honored to be a part of this collective of many professionals who are working together on this next edition of the guidelines. I have the opportunity to co-chair this version of the guidelines with my colleague, Dr. Mark DeTwaddle, and with many, many members of our steering committee and writing group that you'll hear a little bit more about. I think everyone on the call today would agree that there's never been a time when palliative care is more important to our healthcare system and to society. We all know the challenges of an aging population, of populations such as pediatrics that have often been underserved in the area of serious illness, and the vast opportunities that we have to extend the good work of palliative care in many settings throughout our communities. And so these 19, um, these 2018 update of the National Consensus Project will be an effort to both update the evidence and the literature, but also to really broaden our scope. And I think everyone in our field will be very pleased to see all of the work that is going into this next edition of our National Consensus Project Guidelines. 
I have no financial arrangements or other disclosures in participating today, nor does Dr. Portnoy. The objectives for our time together are to review the history of the NCP in establishing guidelines for the field of palliative care. Secondly, to preview the fourth edition of the guidelines that are scheduled for completion later this year. And finally, to discuss opportunities for application of these guidelines to improve the quality of palliative care. We also will be sure and save some time at the end of the webinar and we welcome your comments and questions. I'm pretty sure that most of you on this call today have some background of the NCP, the National Consensus Project, and also some awareness of the previous version of the guidelines. But just as background for those of you who may be newer to the field, the National Consensus Project is an initiative of the National Coalition of hospice and palliative care to further define and underscore the value of palliative care and to improve upon the delivery of palliative care in the United States. When I see these words, I personally am just reminded about what a wonderful privilege it's been to be a part of this history. I started my career 41 years ago, um, and of course at that time the word hospice was new in our vocabulary and there was no thing called palliative care in healthcare. And yet we've had the opportunity in our lifetimes and in our careers to see this entire field emerge and develop. And so for me personally, now almost 20 years ago, to have the opportunity to be a part of the first guidelines for our field is really an important part of our history. The goals of these guidelines are to heighten awareness of palliative care as an option in treating those with serious illness. I'm sure that many of you would agree that in your daily practice, we still come across clinical areas or patient examples or settings of care where we think, wow, do they need palliative care? There's so much that we have to share. Another goal is to build national consensus concerning palliative care through an open and inclusive process. One of the things that I've learned personally over the last 20 years is how important it is that we, in this field, speak with a unified voice. We all should be champions for the importance of early integration of palliative care. We all should be strong advocates of systems that get our patients into hospice care much earlier in the course of disease. Every one of us in this field, whether or not we're chaplains, should be strong advocates that palliative care is not complete without excellent spiritual care. And so when we come together as a field and share the same goals and values and principles, collectively we can have a very strong voice in healthcare about the importance of palliative care. And the NCP process is very practically focused on this last goal of creating and disseminating a set of evidence-based clinical practice guidelines to guide the growth and expansion of palliative care. I think back now to the first time when I was asked to participate in the first set of guidelines and I can't even imagine now 
a time when our field did not have an established set of guidelines. And yet that was really true for many years. But now we can all be very, very proud to be a part of this process and to know that we do have strong consensus and evidence supporting clinical practice guidelines for our field. The National Consensus Project background, as I mentioned, began now uh, in actually 2002 with a task force of key national organizations and content experts who set out to put in writing the first clinical guidelines for palliative care. Three editions of these guidelines have been published, so in 2004, 2009, and again in 2013. That seems like several sets of guidelines in a relatively short period of time. And yet I would ask every one of us to think about just even the time span of 2013 to the present. So much has happened in healthcare, and we need our clinical guidelines to also keep up with the changes in our population and healthcare systems. Once the first set of guidelines were created, we knew that a next very important step is to move these guidelines out of our hands in palliative care and really into the hands of groups such as the National Quality Forum. So the National Consensus Project guidelines have served as the framework for the National Quality Forum Preferred Practices, a hallmark document for the field guiding policymakers, providers, practitioners, and accrediting organizations, as well as consumers, in understanding and integrating the principles of quality palliative care. You know, if someone in our society sets out to find good maternity care because they're pregnant, um, there's a set of expectations of what anyone would want for the safe care, for family-centered care. And yet people every day in our society are seeking health care for an aging parent with Alzheimer's, a spouse just diagnosed with cancer, a child born with serious chronic or life-limiting illness. And yet where are the guidelines for them? So these National Consensus Project guidelines serve our field. They serve policymakers. But most importantly, they serve the public the consumer, because we all would agree that it would be a very good point in history when the public also demands and expects that quality palliative care is a part of the care they and their loved ones will receive in serious illness. We are also really pleased to have an excellent website, and so I encourage everyone that has not been to the website or is not familiar with all of our resources to visit the NCP website, as you see on this screen. When we first created the very first edition of the guidelines, one of our first tasks was to really step back and say, well, what are the domains? What are the parts of this whole thing we call palliative care? And there are eight domains within the guidelines. The first domain is called structures and processes of care. So if we expect people coming into a renal dialysis center to have good symptom management and good psychosocial support as they make important decisions 
about dialysis care and about end-stage renal disease, that won't happen unless we have structures and processes in place. We hope that spiritual care is a part of every patient's care. That won't happen unless there are structures and processes in place. And so our guidelines have as their first domain structures and processes of care. The second domain is physical aspects of care. And so again, a very basic principle from the earliest days of hospice care is that we must provide excellent attention to pain and other symptoms. But this is palliative care, and palliative care is whole person care. And so the other domains of our guidelines, the third domain is psychological and psychiatric aspects of care. We need to be very good at supporting patients' other concerns, such as depression and anxiety. Social aspects of care. Again, one of the hallmarks of hospice from its earliest days is that when one person is diagnosed with a serious illness, a family, a community is diagnosed with a serious illness. So the social domain directs us as to what kind of family and community support should be available. The fifth dimension is spiritual, religious, and existential aspects of care. And this is one of the elements that I would say is particularly important given the diversity of society. One of the things I'm most proud of in being part of a palliative care community is that we are a community that embraces diversity. We are a community that knows that we need to honor the differences between patients and families when it comes to cultural beliefs and practices, as well as diversity in spiritual, religious, and existential aspects of care. So the sixth domain goes along very closely, cultural aspects of care. And you can also see how these domains really overlap. Yes, we value cultural aspects of care, but it is a reminder that if we don't have structures and processes in place, it is unlikely that we will provide culturally respectful care. The seventh domain of our guidelines is care for patients at the end of life. I can remember when we were working on the first edition of these guidelines and in my own work creating the very first edition of our LNET curriculum, and realizing that there were so many instances where we had provided excellent care for a patient who was seriously ill, and yet it seemed that when it came to the final hours or perhaps days before death, things fell apart. And so these clinical practice guidelines give special attention to care for the patient at the very end of life. And they serve as a guide for us to establish quality metrics and quality care practices so that we can ensure the final hours of life are in fact hours that provide the best care to patients and families. The last domain of our guidelines is ethical and legal aspects of care. Again, our field of palliative care is, has inherent ethical dilemmas. We are not waiting for a potential ethical dilemma to perhaps happen somewhere, every day in palliative care practice. We face important ethical dilemmas about issues such as nutrition and hydration. The ever-increasing dilemmas in society such as physician assistance in dying. 
the diversity of our populations often puts us in situations of clashes based on culture. And so we in palliative care should expect ethical and legal issues to emerge. But more importantly, we should be prepared to honor patients and families by having systems in place to address these important ethical issues. The fourth edition of the guidelines in so many ways really, in my mind, takes us to an entirely different place. In January 2017, the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation awarded a two-year grant to support a stakeholder summit and the development, endorsement, dissemination, and implementation of this next edition of the guidelines. The goal was to develop and disseminate national practice guidelines to improve access to quality palliative care for all people with serious illness, regardless of setting, diagnoses, prognosis, or age. Now we could spend the entire hour just on the second bullet point here on this slide because, boy, is this a big leap. Moving upstream, moving our attention away from just those who are imminently dying, and to really believe these words. This is care that is necessary for all people with serious illness across all settings of care. Our plan in this edition is to build on the success and the strategies of the NCP guidelines, third edition. And again, I really encourage you to go to our website and to read more and learn more about our current process. Some of the key project components in the timeline is that we began with development of a steering committee, as well as a writing work group. Much of that work has happened in recent months. The NCP Strategic Direction Stakeholder Summit then occurred in June of last year. Again, this is such a huge sign of the progress of our field. Probably many of you can remember the time where we could probably fit almost our entire field around a table uh, because there were so few of us. We were a very small field, very few organizations interested or dedicated to this work. And so it's a powerful statement that we had 43 different organizations who came together to help launch this next edition of the guidelines. The writing, review, and revisions began then in July and extend until March of 2018. So we're well into this process and some amazing work has happened. We then will have a process of approval and endorsement from national stakeholder groups and publication of the guidelines will happen July or perhaps just a little bit later than we originally anticipated. One of the reasons I wanted to share with you and kind of add into um, our slides today is that the National Consensus Project has now made a commitment in this fourth edition of the guidelines to conduct a systematic review of the evidence. So the fourth edition of the guidelines will have a much stronger evidence base and will include a very comprehensive systematic review of the evidence which will position these guidelines much stronger in terms of their stature with other guidelines for our country in terms of quality health care. So this is a, another big leap ahead, and we're so, so thankful to the supporters, to the 
support the Embedding More Foundation and others that are contributing to the success of these guidelines. We'll, there will be wide dissemination of the guidelines through conferences, webinars, and communications. And we hope that everyone feels ownership, that everyone in our field of palliative care is committed to helping share the news uh, about all that we can do and contribute now to serious illness care. This next slide is pretty powerful, and again, it's a slide that we could spend a lot of time on, but I'm so proud to see this slide, because what you see is that the National Consensus Project leadership organizations have expanded tremendously since that first edition of the guidelines were created. You now see that not only do we have the palliative medicine, national hospice organization, hospice and palliative care nurses, but we have a broad range of organizations and disciplines. Social workers have always been key to the work of hospice and palliative care, and so, of course, it's vital that we have the social work hospice and palliative care network. The Association of Professional Chaplains, a vital group to provide input and to help us advance spiritual care in serious illness care. I want to call to your attention, though, there are some new groups that have joined us. For example, the Physicians Assistance in Hospice and now Palliative Medicine Organization. So if we really want to reach to rural communities and community settings, we have to really pause and think about who are the providers of care across all settings. And so having our physician's assistance colleagues, having professionals in home care, in home care medicine, and certainly you see represented the National Pediatric Hospice and Palliative Care Collaboration. From the very beginning in development of the first set of the guidelines, it was with great intention that we wanted the guidelines to represent pediatrics to geriatrics. And yet, what a very important example to see the growth of pediatric palliative care and all the opportunities that we have as a field to integrate palliative care throughout pediatric care. So these organizations represent the work that is to be done and the outreach that is possible with our guidelines. We've mentioned the Strategic Direction Summit that was held in June of 2017. The purpose was to bring together key national stakeholder organizations to discuss and really define the essential elements of quality primary and specialty palliative care in the community and to elicit input to begin the work of creating these guidelines. There were 58 representatives from 43 different national organizations that came together to just help us brainstorm and to really think creatively about all the opportunities in this next set of guidelines dissemination. We had accrediting bodies, payers, community service organizations. It was a rich discussion and it was a real reminder of how broad the reach can be of palliative care. Some of the key themes of that discussion were, first of all, defining community. Who is community? While the previous editions of the guidelines have intended to have a broad reach, in reality, part of our own growth and development of our field, we would admit that much of the emphasis of the previous editions 
has been on hospice programs and on specialty palliative care. So, for example, palliative care consultation teams within hospitals. And yet, we also know that palliative care needs to be delivered everywhere that people who are seriously ill are cared for. And so community embraces all settings of care. We need to think about rural hospitals who may never have a specialty palliative care service, and yet with the benefit of training for professionals, telehealth, collaborations with community hospice programs, they too have the opportunity to fully extend palliative care. We need to also think about our community in its broadest sense homeless shelters, and clinics serving homeless populations. We need to think about renal dialysis centers, women's health centers. We need to think about home care, about community-based Alzheimer's care centers. So essentially anywhere where people who are seriously ill and their families seek care and support is a very important area for extending palliative care. So we needed to really hear from stakeholders about the opportunities. We also gave a lot of consideration to the eight domains that were established that we reviewed in terms of what are the elements of palliative care. As we define community, we realized that the community should be defined by the person, where the person is, and also as a lens through which people's needs can be assessed. We can think about any one population with serious illness, and we can also be reminded of a very important principle, and that is our patients move across settings of care. We can think about a person who was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease, and yet in the course of receiving care for her Alzheimer's in her primary care provider's office, the woman's care also needed to be inclusive of all her other comorbid diseases, and that perhaps with the progression of her Alzheimer's, her diabetes or arthritis, or perhaps she developed a cancer along the way. And so this primary care provider is struggling to care for seriously ill, of a seriously ill person, but who has multiple illnesses and whose care will be impacted by all of those illnesses. There may be a point in time where that woman is cared for primarily at home by her family, or perhaps spends time in an adult daycare center. Certainly great opportunities for palliative care. As the patient's disease progresses, there may be some crisis episodes, a pneumonia, a fall, some event in which that woman is now in an acute care hospital setting. And the attention to her palliative care needs should continue. Perhaps that patient is discharged back home with her family, and yet important conversations have happened while hospitalized in that realm of the ethical and legal concerns about advanced care planning. Perhaps over the next few months, the patient will have other visits to community providers or perhaps other crises that director to an urgent care setting. And then at some point, her care may progress from home-based service to hospice care. So it is very, very important that our clinical practice guidelines are reflective not just of a single setting, but really are reflective
person living with a serious illness and how that person may very well cross multiple community settings. As we listen to various stakeholders to describe for us what they needed to see in these next edition of the clinical guidelines, providers talk to us about their practices, including accountable care organizations, using the guidelines to design home-based and other community-based programs. Education. These clinical guidelines have also been used to establish expectations for skills and knowledge needed to practice. It's a very important thing to see medical school and social work and PA and nursing curriculum reflect the eight domains of our guidelines. The guidelines are also needed to establish a baseline for measuring where you are and then measuring change. And so these guidelines are such a strong foundation for all of us to continually improve the quality of care that we provide. The guidelines have been used for accreditation in defining care that should be expected for those with serious illness by organizations such as the Joint Commission and by health plans. The guidelines are used to ensure that health plans working with providers in their networks are responsive to the needs of their members with serious illness. And certainly research is guided through these domains. The existence of our guidelines validates the level of importance and provides credibility for our field of palliative care research. I know for me, being there at this meeting with stakeholders was a very exciting day because having probably spent, like many of you, the first few decades of my life just trying to get anyone to listen to the importance of hospice and palliative care, and now to be in a room of payers, providers, accrediting bodies um, saying, give us the guidelines. We get it. We understand the need for a much better way to care for seriously ill people, and we need your help. And so this is our time. It really is our opportunity. Based on the discussions at the summit, some of the key considerations were, first of all, to be applicable across settings whenever possible, preferably within one set of guidelines. So again, I will tell you, we had conversation. Should we have one set of guidelines for specialty programs or hospices and another set of guidelines for generalists or primary care providers? But in the end, there was very strong agreement that if our focus is on the patient, then we need to have one set of guidelines. And that one set of guidelines does need to recognize differences across settings and resources that these are guidelines for the care of patients, and those patient needs transcend whatever setting of care that they may be in. We need these guidelines to represent both primary and specialty level palliative care. We need guidelines that are flexible and adaptable because we all know that healthcare is changing so dramatically. Thus, we committed at that point to start with the eight domains as currently outlined in the third edition and then to be open and to add other domains if warranted. I can give you a little bit of update on the status um, of our writing. One of the key elements that emerged that needed much more attention in this next set of guidelines has to do with coordination of care. 
we really needed more attention to how we can ensure better care as patients move across settings. And yet, as the writing work groups and steering committee have worked with the next edition of the guidelines, we're seeing how coordination of care is very much a part of that first domain, the structures and processes of care. So we will continue to be open to the final format for these guidelines, but I think where we are at this point in the process, you will see that very much those original eight domains of the guidelines are really affirmed in this next edition. We also, in this guideline uh, revision, will be expanding the family caregiver focus. I think every one of us, again, from pediatrics to geriatrics, recognizes that most healthcare now is occurring in people's living rooms. It is the home environment with parents, adults caring for grandchildren. It's across ages, more and more families caring for long-term health needs of seriously ill children at home, but it's about families and family caregivers. And so our guidelines, guidelines need to really reflect the family caregiver as the true primary care provider. We will continue throughout this set of guidelines to address different populations, from pediatrics to geriatrics, and yet we need to give more thought to the different settings where both pediatrics and geriatric patients are cared for. We need to incorporate culture and communication and coordination and transitions throughout every domain. We need to develop a format and structure that includes practical examples of applying these guidelines across circumstances. And to really clarify the difference between clinical versus operational guidelines. We also want to identify triggers for specialist-level palliative care to really drive utilization and integration. I don't know if all of you could identify with this, but one of the things that I think of in my own career in palliative care is that we still have, in many ways, often been very crisis-driven. We wait until the crisis happens, and then we respond. When the pain is out of control or there's a standoff in a clash of values and beliefs in an ICU setting. We wait until there is a crisis where the patient is at odds with their family about discontinuing dialysis or life support. And one of our great opportunities through these guidelines is to continue to emphasize that we should be very proactive in our field of palliative care. We should be avoiding last minute in crisis decisions. And one of the ways that we can do that is through identifying triggers for specialist-level palliative care. Who are the patients that we know really will benefit, that outcomes will be altered, repeat hospital admissions avoided when we provide more proactive care? So we've made many new recommendations, and I think you'll see this fourth edition of the guidelines retain some of the most important values and principles that we've all learned from the early days of hospice, but you will also see a lot of new thought really reflective of the current system of healthcare. While you're waiting for the release of the actual guidelines, I would strongly encourage you to go to our website and to read the summary report from the summit because it itself 
is a great reflection and a great summary of current thinking from all of these individuals and organizations in the field. This stakeholder summit really captures the discussion that was held there and the many, many different perspectives about the need for our field. Again, on this slide, we return to probably the most important focus of this set of guidelines, and that is a real recognition in our field that palliative care is for all people with serious illness. The goal is to improve access to quality palliative care for all people with serious illness, regardless of setting, diagnosis, prognosis, or age. The aim is to formalize and delineate evidence-based processes and practices for the provision of safe and reliable high-quality care for adults and children and families with serious illness. Now, as you can imagine, we always are coming up with terms and concepts, but then we have to step back ourselves and say, do we all share the same understanding of what that term really means? And so at our summit and in our guidelines, we've had to spend some time thinking about this term, serious illness. Serious illness is defined as a health condition that carries a high risk of mortality and either negatively impacts a person's daily function or quality of life or excessively strains their caregiver. And you see this is uh, from work by Amy Kelly in Press identifying the population with serious illness. And in fact, um, this becomes our denominator, that we need to now really think about the services we provide in palliative care for people with serious illness. I think about my own work as a nurse and a researcher in a cancer hospital. In my hospital, there have been remarkable changes just in the last few years, and in fact, just in the years since the release of the last edition of the NCP guidelines, in areas such as lung cancer care, because of new targeted agents and immunotherapies, people with lung cancer, even advanced stage lung cancer, now live for years. Does that mean that we should wait for three or four years, wait until that person has now have advanced or current disease before we think about palliative care? Or shouldn't there be a trigger? Shouldn't we use this definition of serious illness and say, you know, people with lung cancer live with a high risk of mortality and a lot of things that are impacting their quality of life, such as symptoms, dyspnea, pain, fatigue, cachexia, depression. People with lung cancer very likely have family members who are also very burdened psychologically or physically in supporting the patient. And so if we recognize lung cancer as a serious illness, why would we hesitate to integrate palliative care fully in the care of all people with lung cancer? So I think the release of this guidelines will give us a good opportunity to use this term, care of the seriously ill, and to really think about all of the ways and all of the places where palliative care could make an enormous difference in the quality of life of patients and families. I think about some of my colleagues who have told me in recent years that 
the cardiology service um, that for many years avoided integration of palliative care is now the highest referring department of the entire hospital because there's been a great track record of what palliative care can offer in people living with serious heart illness. I think of many examples in the country where some of our colleagues now are pioneering new paths. For example, integrating palliative care for patients with hematologic malignancies. Again, an area where often there was a belief that, no, the focus needs to be only on cure and the disease, not on palliative care. There's so many areas in the community where people are seeking health care, and yet there is an absence of any structured palliative care. And yet there's so much that we can offer in terms of better ways to manage symptoms, ways to support families during anticipatory grief or during the time of bereavement. There's so much that we can do to improve how people die in home care settings or long-term care settings. And there are fortunately so many outstanding models of care across the country that have really brought these written guidelines to life, that have really demonstrated how we can apply these guidelines even in the busiest times in healthcare settings. So we emphasize in the guidelines that palliative care is a person and family-centered approach to care for people who are seriously ill, that it is complex, it's comprehensive, physical, emotional, spiritual, and social assessment. It's a skilled management of pain and symptoms. It's expert communication about what's most important to patients and families. Palliative care can be delivered in all settings and is frequently provided over a long period of time. And palliative care should be provided in any setting by any clinician with appropriate preparation and training. Again, there's a tremendous amount of information, and now is a good time to start checking in on a regular basis on the website of the National Coalition for Hospice and Palliative Care so that you can keep abreast of the final reviews and implementation and dissemination of the guidelines. So now we've come to uh, the end of this global discussion about the guidelines, the domains of the guidelines, and our intent of really broadening their application uh, throughout community settings. And we wanted to reserve the last minute, the last 15 minutes of our webinar today to thoughts that you might have, as well as questions that perhaps I um, could address about the work of the National Consensus Project. Um, before I open to questions, I just want to really acknowledge that in all of my career, um, I can honestly tell you that this experience of serving on this fourth edition of the guidelines is by far one of the best experiences I've had professionally because it is truly a team effort. There is an amazing, outstanding staff at the National Coalition, Gwen Sullivan, um, all of the staff are working very hard to ensure that all voices are heard. And so it is really a team effort, and I think you will see that as this fourth edition of guidelines comes into our hands, that it is something that we can all embrace and share very widely in our community. So I am welcome any questions or comments that anyone might have. 
Eddie, thank you very much. Um, this is Russ Portnoy again. I'm going to moderate some of the uh, question and answer period. It was just a terrific summary of the of the guideline development process and where where it stands. Um, as as Betty said, well, we would like to give you all a, a couple of minutes to enter your questions. Ah, here's a question: um, Is there any connection between uh, the new guidelines and a national framework for the, from the National Quality Forum, like the last guidelines? Um, yes, yes. A great question. Um, when we completed the very first edition of the guidelines, um, I didn't really even recognize what the next steps might be, but I quickly learned that one of the most important partnerships that we have and one of our most important alliances is with the National Quality Forum because the National Quality Forum then uh, is able to take our guidelines and to really move them forward and help to make these guidelines uh, take on the life of preferred practices and also help to move toward measurement, quality measurement. And so the National Quality Forum has continued to be engaged in this process through each edition of the guideline, and they are very much a partner in our current work. So yes, we will be partnering very closely with the National Quality Forum uh, as the new guidelines are released. Betty, there's a series of questions here that um, reflect maybe some confusion about what, how the guidelines are going to look and, um, and how they're going to be used. The first question here is, is um, what's, what is the connection between guidelines and competencies, quality improvement, uh, measurement, and research? Um, you know, it, there are so many terms that it is confusing, and it's sort of taken all of us, you know, who are really hands-on involved in creation of these guidelines, a lot of effort to distinguish, you know, what is the clinical practice guideline, what is a recommendation, uh, what then becomes a standard or a metric, and so it's pretty complicated language that we probably can't, you know, sort through um, just on, on the phone call. Um, I think the best sort of way that I could, you know, perhaps explain is that we are creating guidelines and the guidelines are general principles about um, the care to be delivered. And then our, if you pick up you know, the current edition of the guidelines, what you'll see is that um, what follows the general guideline are then specific recommendations. So there are steps that will help us achieve that overall guideline. When you have a guideline, for example, that spiritual assessment should be a part of excellent palliative care, and then we have some specific recommendations to guide how that might be possible. So for example, training of staff in this area of spiritual care, or making sure that we're including a spiritual care assessment within our electronic medical records. So um, the clinical practice guidelines, though, really reflect a kind of a global statement about what care should be delivered, as well as steps to um, achieve that goal. It's then um, beyond these guidelines 
is where organizations such as the Joint Commission, the National Quality Forum, then take these guidelines and then move them forward in terms of being uh, measurable uh, aspects of an accreditation process or to really help identify what are the metrics that should be applied so that we know if that guideline has been achieved. So um, I think it is a bit complicated to try to just you know sort out the language and to really understand where the work of one organization ends and another begins. Um, but I think I would just add that, first of all, we are still a growing and emerging field. And so whether it's in writing the guidelines or the work by NQF or others in determining how to best measure um, the outcomes of our care, much of that is still a work in progress, although a tremendous amount of work has been done in recent years. But it will, it will continue to be an effort to try to move these guidelines from the paper they're printed on or from, you know, from our website to be really measurable outcomes of our care and practice. And I think you've answered this. Another questioner asks, will the guidelines include recommendations for measurements or will that fall to the NQF or I would suggest others? It sounds like the measurement recommendations would be the responsibility of other organizations that, that use the guidelines as a framework. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. And one of the reasons is, again, if you remember that the intention of the guidelines is to be a very global document that addresses all serious illnesses and across all settings and populations. So, for example, a pain assessment tool that's used for a neonate, as we all know, is you know, very different than one used for a cognitively intact adult, and that's very different than a cognitively impaired adult. And the same is true um, of a measurement tool that might apply well within an inpatient setting where we have a longer opportunity to observe patients may not be at all practical in an outpatient uh, setting of care. And so just as the, the, you know, the clinical practice guidelines need to then be adapted and really applied to various disease groups and settings of care, our measurement also um, will be reflective of that diversity of care. I think the um, next several questions sort of revolve around the same concept, um, and I think they're born of uh, some confusion. Um, so the first question would be, you mentioned that the guidelines would apply to both primary and specialist care, but if they are really guidelines, how can they apply to uh, both levels of care? Um, another question, very similar in a way, said, uh, I noticed that the stakeholder group had uh, this, uh, I'm sorry, I noticed that the stakeholder pamphlet on the website had the words community-based palliative care. Um, are the guidelines really going to apply across palliative care delivered in the home and palliative care delivered in the hospital? How can one set of guidelines do that? It is true that it, it really is a challenge, um, but that is also the challenge of our field, right? That 
we are delivering care for seriously ill people, and that truly is inclusive of um, an infant in an ICU and an elderly person at home with COPD and, um, you know, an adolescent with a brain tumor. I mean, we do care for a very broad range of populations and the illnesses. One of the things that you will see in the fourth edition of the guidelines is that within um, you know, the way that we thought would be best to really explain and really capture this notion of this broad community application is through practice examples. And so, for example, um, when you read the domain of the guidelines that has to do with um, psychological and psychiatric aspects of care, the guidelines themselves and the recommendations are intended to be applicable across settings. And yet we know that in a home care agency or a community health clinic um, or a center that is predominantly caring for a homeless population, that resources are much more limited. And so the practice examples will be descriptions of how various settings of care are applying the guidelines. Another example might be within the domain that addresses uh, grief, loss, and bereavement support. If you are a large medical center with a specialty out of care team and you have a volunteer coordinator and a formal bereavement service, um, your resources and the way that you implement the guidelines will be very different than a community agency that has none of those things. And yet, one of the things that we really emphasize in the next edition of the guidelines is this is also a time for partnerships. There are many community agencies that would be so much better served by creating partnerships with area hospice programs or consulting arrangements with hospitals that do have specialty palliative care services. And so we hope that these guidelines also really spark um, a lot of collaboration because we really do need palliative care integrated throughout the community, but we have to fully realize that it will look different across different clinical settings of care. Here's an interesting question. Was any consideration given to adding a financial domain or a, dom or a domain focused on uh, health care coverage? It's a major issue for the patients I care for. Well, yeah, we recognize very much that financial factors are a part of every aspect of the uh, patient's experience. There is not a separate financial domain of the guidelines, but we have throughout the guidelines tried to include recognition of financial factors. And so, for example, um, in the domains that deal with physical aspects of care or psychological aspects of care, you know, there is language um, about part of our responsibility is also to be mindful of what medications or treatments or services the patient even has access to. Um, the social domain which is the area of the guidelines that deals with a lot of the family system um, is another place where we 
acknowledge how important it is to be to have a system to place so that we do an assessment of what are the patient's financial you know, factors and barriers um, that we should know about in order to plan the most appropriate care. So you know, I think also with just within cultural diversity that we, when we hear the word diversity or culture, we think of ethnicity, but um, caring for the poor, caring for people who have such limited resources is also an important commitment to diversity. I think this is a bit of a technical question, but interesting one. Um, uh, you said that the guidelines will be evidence-based. What is the criteria for deciding what will undergo a systematic review? So the, um, thank you for the question. The National Consensus Project uh, began their work, and then it was because of feedback from some of our partners that we realized that, again, we're at a very different place in the year 2018. So we began to hear input from payers and accrediting groups uh, saying that for these guidelines to really have merit, that they really did need to meet uh, the criteria for acceptance as um, evidence-based clinical practice guidelines. And so the NCP has just uh, completed a, a process of, um, of soliciting uh, support and then launching, um, receiving proposals and selecting a vendor to conduct a um, you know very high level systematic review of the evidence. Now, any of you who have done systematic reviews, you know, know that it's challenging enough to set out and do a systematic review on one thing, like what is our current knowledge of cancer pain management. Um, and so you recognize that doing systematic review of eight domains is a pretty huge task. So we are in the process now with um, our vendor uh, doing the to plan systematic review so that we can really focus the criteria uh, across all of the usual requirements of a systematic review in terms of uh, the, the databases searched, um, what should be included, um, but we very much, you know, the systematic review, the intention is that it also reflects the scope of the guidelines. So um, I think it's a big step forward that we even are at the point of doing this, but I also think that when the final uh, guidelines, this fourth edition, are published, it will be a great strength to all of us to carry forward these guidelines that have not only a strong clinical consensus, but do have uh, a measuring of evidence that supports the recommendation. That was our last question, and we've run out of time as well in, in the hour. It's been a really great discussion. I want to thank Dr. Farrell, and I think everybody, including myself, actually looks forward to getting our hands on the next, edi next edition. Uh, there'll be a lot to unpack there. I want to thank uh, all of you who attended the webinar and also want to announce that the next webinar is going to be an update on adjuvant analgesics and advanced illness. Uh, that will be given by me. And that will be on February 22nd, 2018 at 12.30 in the afternoon. Please remember to complete the webinar evaluations. They're useful to us in planning future webinars and uh, for the credit that you can get. And again, I want to thank Dr. Betty Farrell for a truly excellent presentation. Thank you, Betty. Thank you.